0: Chapter forty one part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. But the purest reward of Belisarius was in the faithful execution of a treaty for which his honor had been pledged to the king of the Vandals. The religious scruples of Gelimer who adhered to the Arian heresy, were incompatible with the dignity of senator or patrician, but he received from the emperor an ample estate in the province of Galatia, where the abdicated monarch retired with his family and friends to a life of peace, of affluence, and perhaps of content. The daughters of Hilderic were entertained with the respectful tenderness due to their age and misfortune and Justinian and Theodora accepted the honor of educating and enriching the female descendants of the great Theodosius. The bravest of the Vandal youth were distributed into five squadrons of cavalry, which adopted the name of their benefactor, and supported in the Persian wars the glory of their ancestors. But these rare exceptions, the reward of birth or valor, are insufficient to explain the fate of a nation whose numbers before a short and bloodless war amounted to more than 600,000 persons. After the exile of their king and nobles, the servile crowd might purchase their safety by adjuring their character, religion, and language, and their degenerate posterity would be insensibly mingled with the common herd of African subjects. Yet, even in the present age, and in the heart of the Moorish tribes, a curious traveler has discovered the white complexion and long flaxen hair of a northern race. And it was formerly believed that the boldest of the Vandals fled beyond the power, or even the knowledge, of the romans, to enjoy their solitary freedom on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. Africa had been their empire; it became their prison; nor could they entertain a hope, or even a wish, of returning to the banks of the Elbe, where their brethren, of a spirit less adventurous, still wandered in their native forest. It was impossible for cowards to surmount the barriers of unknown seas and hostile barbarians. It was impossible for brave men to expose their nakedness and defeat before the eyes of their countrymen, to describe the kingdoms which they had lost, and to claim a share of the humble inheritance, which, in a happier hour, they had almost unanimously renounced. In the country between the Elbe and the Oder, several populous villages of Lusatia are inhabited by the Vandals. They still preserve their language, their customs, and the purity of their blood, support with some impatience the Saxon or Prussian yoke, and serve with secret and voluntary allegiance the descendants of their ancient kings, who in his garb and present fortune is confounded with the meanest of his vassals. The name and situation of this unhappy people might indicate their descent from one common stock with the conquerors of Africa but the use of a Sclavonian dialect more clearly represents them as the last remnant of the new colonies who succeeded to the genuine Vandals, already scattered or destroyed in the age of Procopius. If Belisarius had been tempted to hesitate in his allegiance, he might have urged, even against the emperor himself, the indispensable duty of saving Africa from an enemy more barbarous than the Vandals. The origin of the Moors is involved in darkness, They were ignorant of the use of letters. Their limits cannot be precisely defined. A boundless continent was open to the Libyan shepherds. The change of seasons and pastures regulated their motions, and their rude huts and slender furniture were transported with the same ease as their arms, their families, and their cattle, which consisted of sheep, oxen, and camels. During the vigor of the Roman power, they observed a respectful distance from Carthage and the seashore, under the feeble reign of the Vandals, they invaded the cities of Numidia, occupied the seacoast from Cangier to Caesarea, and pitched their camps with impunity in the fertile province of Byzacium. The formidable strength and artful conduct of Belisarius secured the neutrality of the Moorish princes, whose vanity aspired to receive in the emperor's name the ensigns of their royal dignity. They were astonished by the rapid event, and trembled in the presence of their conqueror. But his approaching departure soon relieved the apprehensions of a savage and superstitious people. The number of their wives allowed them to disregard the safety of their infant hostages, and when the Roman general hoisted sail in the port of Carthage, he heard the cries, and almost beheld the flames of the desolated province. Yet he persisted in his resolution, and leaving only a part of his guards to reinforce the feeble garrisons, he entrusted the command of Africa to the eunuch Solomon who proved himself not unworthy to be the successor of Belisarius. In the first invasion some detachments, with two officers of merit, were surprised and intercepted, but Solomon speedily assembled his troops, marched from Carthage into the heart of the country, and in two great battles destroyed sixty thousand of the barbarians. The Moors, dependent on their multitude, their swiftness, and their inaccessible mountains, and the aspect and smell of their camels, are said to have produced some confusion in the Roman cavalry. But as soon as they were commanded to dismount, they derided this contemptible obstacle. As soon as the columns ascended the hills, the naked and disorderly crowd was dazzled by glittering arms and regular evolutions, and the menace of their female prophets was repeatedly fulfilled, that the Moors should be discomfited by a beardless antagonist. The victorious eunuch advanced thirteen days from carthage to besiege mount arasius the citadel and at the same time the garden of numidia that range of hills a branch of the great atlas contains within a circumference of one hundred and twenty miles a rare variety of soil and climate the intermediate valleys and elevated plain abound with rich pastures perpetual streams and fruits of a delicious taste and uncommon magnitude This fair solitude is decorated with the ruins of Lambessa, a Roman city, once the seat of a legion, and the residence of 40,000 inhabitants. The Ionic temple of Iscapolis is encompassed with Moorish huts, and the cattle now graze in the midst of an amphitheater, under the shade of Corinthian columns. A sharp perpendicular rock rises above the level of the mountain, where the African princes deposited their wives and treasure, and a proverb is familiar to the Arabs, that the man may eat fire who dares to attack the craggy cliffs and inhospitable natives of Mount Arasius. This hardy enterprise was twice attempted by the eunuch Solomon. From the first he retreated with some disgrace, and in the second his patience and provisions were almost exhausted, and he again must have retired, if he had not yielded to the impetuous courage of his troops, who audaciously scaled, to the astonishment of the Moors, the mountain the hostile camp, and the summit of the Geminian rock. A citadel was erected to secure this important conquest, and to remind the barbarians of their defeat, and as Solomon pursued his march to the west, the long-lost province of Mauritanian Cetiphi was again annexed to the Roman Empire. The Moorish war continued several years after the departure of Belisarius, but the laurels, which he resigned to a faithful lieutenant, may be justly ascribed to his own triumph. The experience of past faults, which may sometimes correct the mature age of an individual, is seldom profitable to the successive generations of mankind. The nations of antiquity, careless of each other's safety, were separately vanquished and enslaved by the Romans. This awful lesson might have instructed the barbarians of the West to oppose, with timely counsels and Confederate arms, the unbounded ambition of Justinian. Yet the same error was repeated the same consequences were felt, and the Goths, both of Italy and Spain, insensible of their approaching danger, beheld with indifference, and even with joy, the rapid downfall of the Vandals. After the failure of the Roman line, Theodes, a valiant and powerful chief, ascended the throne of Spain, which he had formerly administered in the name of Theodoric and his infant grandson. Under his command, the Visigoths besieged the fortress of Ceuta, on the African coast. But while they spent the Sabbath day in peace and devotion, the pious security of their camp was invaded by a sally from the town, and the king himself, with some difficulty and danger, escaped from the hands of a sacrilegious enemy. It was not long before his pride and resentment were gratified by a suppliant embassy from the unfortunate Gelimer, who implored, in his distress, the aid of the Spanish monarch. It was not long before his pride and resentment were gratified by a suppliant embassy from the unfortunate Gelimer, who implored, in his distress, the aid of the Spanish monarch. But instead of sacrificing these unworthy passions to the dictates of generosity and prudence, Theodes amused the ambassadors till he was secretly informed of the loss of Carthage, and then dismissed them with an obscure and contemptuous advice to seek in their native country a true knowledge of the state of the Vandals. The long continuance of the Italian war delayed the punishment of the Visigoths, and the eyes of Théodes were closed before they tasted the fruits of his mistaken policy. After his death, the scepter of Spain was disputed by a civil war. The The weaker candidate solicited the protection of Justinian, and ambitiously subscribed a treaty of alliance, which deeply wounded the independence and happiness of his country. Several cities, both on the ocean and the Mediterranean, receded to the Roman troops, who afterwards refused to evacuate those pledges, as it should seem, either of safety or payment, and as they were fortified by perpetual supplies from Africa, they maintained their impregnable stations for the mischievous purpose of inflaming the civil and religious factions of the barbarians. Seventy years elapsed before this painful thorn could be extirpated from the bosom of the monarchy, And as long as the emperors retained any share of these remote and useless possessions, their vanity might number Spain in the list of their provinces, and the successors of Alaric in the rank of their vassals. The error of the Goths, who reigned in Italy, was less excusable than that of their Spanish brethren, and their punishment was still more immediate and terrible. From a motive of private revenge, they enabled their most dangerous enemy to destroy their most valuable ally a sister of the great Theodoric had been given in marriage to Thrasimund, the African king. On this occasion, the fortress of Lilibium in Sicily was resigned to the Vandals, and the princess Amalafrida was attended by a martial train of one thousand nobles, and five thousand Gothic soldiers, who signalized their valor in the Moorish wars. Their merit was overrated by themselves, and perhaps neglected by the Vandals. They viewed the country with envy, and the conquerors with disdain, but their real or fictitious conspiracy was prevented by a massacre. The Goths were oppressed, and the captivity of Amalafrida was soon followed by her secret and suspicious death. The eloquent pen of Cassiodorus was employed to reproach the Vandal court, with the cruel violation of every social and public duty. But the vengeance which he threatened in the name of his sovereign might be derided with impunity as long as Africa was protected by the sea, and the Goths were destitute of a navy." In the blind impotence of grief and indignation, they joyfully saluted the approach of the Romans, entertained the fleet of Belisarius in the ports of Sicily, and were speedily delighted, or alarmed, by the surprising intelligence that the revenge was executed beyond the measure of their hopes, or perhaps of their wishes. To their friendship, the emperor was indebted for the kingdom of Africa, and the Goths might reasonably think that they were entitled to resume the possession of a barren rock, so recently separated as a nuptial gift from the island of Sicily. They were soon undeceived by the haughty mandate of Belisarius, which excited their tardy and unavailing repentance. "'The city and promontory of Lilibium,' said the Roman general, "'belong to the vandals, and I claim them by the right of conquest. Your submission may deserve the favor of the emperor. Your obstinacy will provoke his displeasure.' and must kindle a war that can terminate only in your utter ruin. If you compel us to take up arms, we shall contend, not to regain possession of a single city, but to deprive you of all the provinces which you unjustly withhold from their lawful sovereign. A nation of two hundred thousand soldiers might have smiled at the vain menace of Justinian and his lieutenant, but a spirit of discord and disaffection prevailed in Italy and the Goths supported with reluctance the indignity of a female reign. The birth of Amalasantha, the regent and queen of Italy, united the two most illustrious families of the barbarians. Her mother, the sister of Clovis, was descended from the long-haired kings of the Merovingian race, and the regal succession of the Alamai was illustrated in the eleventh generation by her father, the great Theodoric, whose merit might have ennobled a plebeian origin. The sex of his daughter excluded her from the Gothic throne, but his vigilant tenderness for his family and his people discovered the last heir of the royal line, whose ancestors had taken refuge in Spain, and the fortunate Eutheric was suddenly exalted to the rank of a consul and a prince. He enjoyed, only a short time, the charms of a Malasantha, and the hopes of the secession, and his widow, after the death of her husband and father, was left the guardian of her son Athalaric in the kingdom of Italy. At the age of about twenty-eight years, the endowments of her mind and person had attained their perfect maturity. Her beauty, which, in the apprehension of Theodora herself, might have disputed the conquest of an emperor, was animated by manly sense, activity, and resolution. Education and experience had cultivated her talents. Her philosophic studies were exempt from vanity, and though she expressed herself with equal elegance and ease in the Greek, Latin, and the Gothic tongue, the daughter of Theodoric maintained in her counsels a discreet and impenetrable silence. By a faithful imitation of the virtues, she revived the prosperity of his reign, while she strove with pious care to expiate the faults and to obliterate the darker memory of his declining age. The children of Boethius and Symmachus were restored to their parental inheritance. Her extreme lenity never consented to inflict any corporal or pecuniary penalties on her Roman subjects, and she generously despised the clamors of the Goths, who, at the end of forty years, still considered the people of Italy as their slaves or their enemies. Her salutary measures were directed by the wisdom and celebrated by the eloquence of Cassiodorus, she solicited and deserved the friendship of the emperor. And the kingdoms of Europe respected, both in peace and war, the majesty of the Gothic throne. But the future happiness of the Queen of Italy depended on the education of her son, who was destined, by his birth, to support the different and almost incompatible characters of a chief of a barbarian camp and the first magistrate of a civilized nation. From the age of ten years, Ethelaric was diligently instructed in the arts and sciences either useful or ornamental for a roman prince, and three venerable Goths were chosen to instill the principles of honor and virtue into the mind of their young king. But the pupil who was insensible of the benefits must abhor the restraints of education, and the solicitude of the queen, which affection rendered anxious and severe, offended the untractable nature of her son and his subjects. On a solemn festival, when the Goths were assembled in the palace of Ravenna, the royal youth escaped from his mother's apartment, and, with tears of pride and anger, complained of a blow which his stubborn disobedience had provoked her to inflict. The barbarians resented the indignity which had been offered to their king, accused the regent of conspiring against his life and crown, and imperiously demanded that the grandson of Theodoric should be rescued from the dastardly discipline of women and pedants and educated, like a valiant goth, in the society of his equals, and the glorious ignorance of his ancestors. To this rude clamor, importunately urged by the voice of the nation, Amalisantha was compelled to yield her reason and the dearest wishes of her heart. The king of Italy was abandoned to wine, to women, and to rustic sports, and the indiscreet contempt of the ungrateful youth betrayed the mischievous designs of his favorites and her enemies. Encompassed with domestic foes, she entered into a secret negotiation with the emperor Justinian, attained the insurance of a friendly reception, and had actually deposited at Dyrrachium, in Epirus, a, a treasure of forty thousand pounds of gold. Happy would it have been for her fame and safety if she had calmly retired from barbarous faction to the peace and splendor of Constantinople. But the mind of Amalasantha was inflamed by ambition and revenge and while her ships lay at anchor in the port, she waited for the success of a crime which her passions excused, or applauded, as an act of justice. Three of the most dangerous malcontents had been separately removed, under the pretense of trust and command to the frontiers of Italy. They were assassinated by her private emissaries, and the blood of these noble Goths rendered the Queen Mother absolute in the court of Ravenna, and justly odious to a free people." but if she lamented the disorders of her son, she soon wept his irreparable loss, and the death of Athalaric, who at the age of sixteen was consumed by premature intemperance, left her destitute of any firm support or legal authority. Instead of submitting to the laws of her country, which held as a fundamental maxim that the succession could never pass from the lance to the distaff, the daughter of theodoric conceived the impracticable design of sharing with one of her cousins the regal title and of reserving in her own hands the substance of supreme power he received the proposal with profound respect and affected gratitude and the eloquent cassiodorus announced to the senate and the emperor that amalisantha and theodotus had ascended the throne of italy his birth for his mother was the sister of theodoric might be considered as an imperfect title, and the choice of a was more strongly directed by her contempt of his avarice and pusillanimity, which deprived him of the love of the Italians and the esteem of the barbarians. But Theodotus was exasperated by the contempt which he deserved. Her justice had repressed and reproached the oppression which he exercised against his Tuscan neighbors, and the principal Goths, united by common guilt and resentment, conspire to instigate his slow and timid disposition. The letters of congratulation were scarcely dispatched before the queen of Italy was imprisoned in a small island of the lake of Bolsena, where, after a short confinement, she was strangled in the bath by the order or the connivance of the new king, who instructed his turbulent subjects to shed the blood of their sovereigns. Justinian beheld with joy the dissensions of the Goths, and the mediation of an ally concealed and promoted the ambitious views of the conqueror. His ambassadors, in their public audience, demanded the fortress of Lilibium, ten barbarian fugitives, and a just compensation for the pillage of a small town on the Illyrian borders, but they secretly negotiated with Theodotus to betray the province of Tuscany, and tempted Amalisantha to extricate herself from danger and perplexity by a free surrender of the kingdom of Italy. A false and servile epistle was subscribed to the reluctant hand of the captive queen; but the confession of the Roman senators who were sent to Constantinople revealed the truth of her deplorable situation, and Justinian, by the voice of a new ambassador, most powerfully interceded for her life and liberty. Yet the secret instructions of the same minister were adapted to serve the cruel jealousy of Theodora, who dreaded the presence and superior charms of her rival, with artful and ambiguous hints, the execution of a crime so useful to the Romans, received the intelligence of her death with grief and indignation, and denounced, in his master's name, immortal war against the perfidious assassin. In Italy, as well as in Africa, the guilt of a usurper appeared to justify the arms of Justinian. But the forces which he prepared were insufficient for the subversion of a mighty kingdom, if their feeble numbers had not been multiplied by the name, the spirit, and the conduct of a hero. A chosen troops of guards, who served on horseback and were armed with lances and bucklers, attended the person of Belisarius. His cavalry was composed of two hundred Huns, three hundred Moors, and four thousand Confederates, and the infantry consisted only of three thousand Isaurians. Steering the same course as in his former expedition, the Roman consul cast anchor before Catana in Sicily, to survey the strength of the island, and to decide whether he should attempt the conquest or peacefully pursue his voyage for the African coast. He found a fruitful land and a friendly people. Notwithstanding the decay of agriculture, Sicily still supplied the granaries of Rome. The farmers were graciously exempted from the oppression of military quarters, and the Goths, who trusted the defense of their island to the inhabitants, had some reason to complain that their confidence was ungratefully betrayed. Instead of soliciting and expecting the aid of the king of Italy. They yielded to the first summons a cheerful obedience, and this province, the first fruits of the Punic Wars, was again, after a long separation, united to the Roman Empire. The Gothic garrison of Palermo, which alone attempted to resist, was reduced after a short siege by a singular stratagem. Belisarius introduced his ships into the deepest recess of the harbour, and their boats were laboriously hoisted with ropes and pulleys to the top mast head and he filled them with archers, who, from that superior station, commanded the ramparts of the city. After this easy, though successful, campaign, the conqueror entered Syracuse in triumph, at the head of his victorious bands, distributing gold medals to the people, on the day which so gloriously terminated the year of the consulship. He passed the winter season in the palace of ancient kings, amidst the ruins of a Grecian colony, which once extended to a circumference of two and twenty miles. But in the spring, about the festival of Easter, the prosecution of his designs was interrupted by a dangerous revolt of the African forces. Carthage was saved by the presence of Belisarius, who suddenly landed with a thousand guards. Two thousand soldiers of doubtful faith returned to the standard of their old commander, and he marched, without hesitation, above fifty miles, to seek an enemy who he affected to pity and despise. 8,000 rebels trembled at his approach. They were routed at the first onset by the dexterity of their master, and this ignoble victory would have restored the peace of Africa, if the conqueror had not been hastily recalled to Sicily, to appease the sedition which had been kindled during his absence in his own camp. Disorder and disobedience were the common malady of the times. The genius to command, and the virtue to obey, resided only in the mind of Belisarius." Although Theodotus descended from a race of heroes, he was ignorant of the art and adverse to the dangers of war. Although he had studied the writings of Plato and Tully, philosophy was incapable of purifying his mind from the basest passions, avarice and fear. He had purchased a scepter by ingratitude and murder. At the first menace of an enemy, he degraded his own majesty and that of a nation which already disdained their unworthy sovereign. Astonished by the recent example of Gelimere, he saw himself dragged in chains through the streets of Constantinople. The terrors which Belisarius inspired were heightened by the eloquence of Peter, the Byzantine ambassador, and that bold and subtle advocate persuaded him to sign a treaty, too ignominious to become the foundation of a lasting peace. It was stipulated that in the acclamations of the Roman people, the name of the emperor should always be proclaimed before that of the Gothic king and that, as often as the statue of Theodotus was erected in brass or marble, the divine image of Justinian should be placed on its right hand. Instead of conferring, the king of Italy was reduced to solicit the honors of the senate, and the consent of the emperor was made indispensable before he could execute, against a priest or senator, the sentence either of death or confiscation. The feeble monarch resigned the possession of Sicily, offered as the annual mark of his dependence, a crown of gold of the weight of three hundred pounds, and a promise to supply, at the requisition of his sovereign, three thousand Gothic auxiliaries for the service of the empire. Satisfied with these extraordinary concessions, the successful agent of Justinian hastened his journey to Constantinople, but no sooner had he reached the Alban villa than he was recalled by the anxiety of Theodotus. In the dialogue which passed between the king and the ambassador, deserves to be represented in its original simplicity. Are you of the opinion that the emperor will ratify this treaty? Perhaps. If he refuses, what consequence will ensue? War. Will such a war be just or reasonable? Most assuredly, every one should act according to his character. What is your meaning? You are a philosopher. Justinian is the emperor of the Romans. It would ill become the disciple of Plato to shed the blood of thousands in his private quarrel. The successor of Augustus should vindicate his rights and recover by arms the ancient possessions of his empire. This reasoning might not convince, but it was sufficient to alarm and subdue the weakness of Theodotus, and he soon descended to his last offer, that, for the poor equivalent of a pension, a 48,000 pound sterling, he would resign the kingdom of the Goths and Italians and spend the remainder of his days in the innocent pleasures of philosophy and agriculture. Both treaties were entrusted to the hands of the ambassador on the frail security of an oath not to produce the second till the first had been positively rejected. The event may be easily foreseen. Justinian required and accepted the abdication of the Gothic king his indefatigable agent returned from Constantinople to Ravenna with ample instructions and a fair epistle, which praised the wisdom and generosity of the royal philosopher, granted his pension with the assurance of such honors as a subject and a Catholic might enjoy, and wisely referred the final execution of the treaty to the presence and authority of Belisarius. But in the interval of suspense, two Roman generals, who had entered the province of Dalmatia, were defeated and slain by the Gothic troops. From blind and abject despair, Theodotus capriciously rose to groundless and fatal presumption, and dared to receive, with menace and contempt, the ambassador of Justinian, who claimed his promise, solicited the allegiance of his subjects, and boldly asserted the inviolable privilege of his own character. The march of Belisarius dispelled this visionary pride, and as the first campaign was employed in the reduction of Sicily, the invasion of Italy is applied by Procopius to the second year of the Gothic War. After Belisarius had left sufficient garrisons in Palermo and Syracuse, he embarked his troops at Messina and landed them, without resistance, on the opposite shores of Regium. A Gothic prince, who had married the daughter of Theodotus, was stationed with an army to guard the entrance of Italy but he imitated without scruple the example of a sovereign faithless to his public and private duties. The perfidious Ebomor deserted with his followers to the Roman camp and was dismissed to enjoy the servile honors of the Byzantine court. From Regium to Naples, the fleet and army of Belisarius, almost always in view of each other, advanced near 300 miles along the sea coast. The people of Brutium, Lucania, and Campania, who abhorred the name and religion of the Goths, Embraced the specious excuse that their ruined walls were incapable of defense. The soldiers paid a just equivalent for a plentiful market, and curiosity alone interrupted the peaceful occupations of the husbandman or artificer. Naples, which had swelled to a great and populous capital, long cherished the language and manners of a Grecian colony, and the choice of Virgil had ennobled this elegant retreat, which attracted the lovers of repose and study from the noise, the smoke, and the laborious opulence of Rome. As soon as the place was invested by sea and land, Belisarius gave audience to the deputies of the people, who exhorted him to disregard a conquest unworthy of his arms, to seek the Gothic king in a field of battle, and after his victory to claim, as the sovereign of Rome, the allegiance of the dependent cities. "'When I treat with my enemies,' replied the Roman chief with a haughty smile, "'I am more accustomed to give than to receive counsel.' But I hold in one hand inevitable ruin, and in the other peace and freedom such as Sicily now enjoys. The impatience of delay urged him to grant the most liberal terms; his honor secured their performance; but Naples was divided into two factions, and the Greek democracy was inflamed by their orators, who, with much spirit and some truth, represented to the multitude that the Goths would punish their defection, and that Belisarius himself must esteem their loyalty and valor. Their deliberations, however, were not perfectly free. The city was commanded by 800 barbarians, whose wives and children were detained at Ravenna, as a pledge of their fidelity. And even the Jews, who were rich and numerous, resisted, with desperate enthusiasm, the intolerant laws of Justinian. In a much later period, the circumference in Naples measured only 2,363 paces. The fortifications were defended by precipices or the sea. When the aqueducts were intercepted, a supply of water might be drawn from wells and fountains, and the stock of provisions was sufficient to consume the patience of the besiegers. At the end of twenty days, that of Belisarius was almost exhausted, and he had reconciled himself to the disgrace of abandoning the siege, that he might march before the winter season against Rome and the Gothic king. But his anxiety was relieved. By the bold curiosity of an Isaurian, who explored the dry channel of an aqueduct and secretly reported that a passage might be perforated to introduce a file of armed soldiers into the heart of the city, when the work had been silently executed, the humane general risked the discovery of a secret by a last and fruitless admonition of the impending danger. In the darkness of the night, four hundred Romans entered the aqueduct, raised themselves by a rope which they fashioned to an olive tree into the house, or garden, of a solitary matron, sounded their trumpets, surprised the sentinels, and gave admittance to their companions, who, on all sides, scaled the walls and burst open the gates of the city. Every crime which is punished by social justice was practiced as as the rites of war. The Huns were distinguished by cruelty and sacrilege, and Belisarius alone appeared in the streets and churches of Naples, to moderate the calamities which he had predicted. The gold and silver, he repeatedly exclaimed, are the just rewards of your valor, but spare the inhabitants. They are Christians, they are suppliants, they are now your fellow subjects. Restore the children to their parents, the wives to their husbands, and show them by your generosity of what friends they have obstinately deprived themselves. The city was saved by the virtue and authority of its conqueror, and when the Neapolitans returned to their homes, they found some consolation in the secret enjoyment of their hidden treasures. The barbarian garrison enlisted in the service of the emperor, Apulia in Calabria, delivered from the odious presence of the Goths, acknowledged his dominion, and the tusks of the Caledonian boar, which were still shown at Beneventum, are curiously described by the historian of Belisarius the faithful soldiers and citizens of Naples had expected their deliverance from a prince who remained the inactive and almost indifferent spectator of the ruin. Theodotus secured his person within the walls of Rome, while his cavalry advanced forty miles on the Appian Way, and encamped in the Pontine Marshes, which, by a canal of nineteen miles in length, had been recently drained and converted into excellent pastures. But the principal forces of the Goths were dispersed in Dalmatia, Venetia, and Gaul, and the feeble mind of their king was confounded by the unsuccessful event of a divination which seemed to presage the downfall of his empire. The most abject slaves have arraigned the guilt or weakness of an unfortunate master. The character of Theodotus was rigorously scrutinized by a free and idle camp of barbarians, conscious of their privilege and power, he was declared unworthy of his race, his nation, and his throne, and their general, Vitigès, whose valor had been signalized in the Illyrian War, was raised with unanimous applause on the bucklers of his companions. On the first rumor, the abdicated monarch fled from the justice of his country, but he was pursued by private revenge. A Goth, whom he had injured in his love, overtook Theodotus on the Flaminian Way, and, regardless of his unmanly cries, slaughtered him as he lay prostrate on the ground, like a victim, says the historian, at the foot of an altar. The choice of the people is the best and purest title to reign over them, yet such is the prejudice of every age, that Vitiges impatiently wished to return to Ravenna, where he might seize, with the reluctant hand of the daughter of Amalisantha, some faint shadow of hereditary right. A national council was immediately held, and the new monarch reconciled the impatient spirit of the barbarians to a measure of disgrace which the misconduct of his predecessor rendered wise and indispensable. The Goths consented to retreat in the presence of a victorious enemy, to delay till the next spring the operations of offensive war, to summon their scattered forces, to relinquish their distant possessions, and to trust even Rome itself to the faith of its inhabitants. Lederis, an aged warrior, was left in the capital with 4,000 soldiers, a feeble garrison which might have seconded the zeal, though it was incapable of opposing, the wishes of the Romans. But a momentary enthusiasm of religion and patriotism was kindled in their minds. They furiously exclaimed that the apostolic throne should no longer be profaned by the triumph or toleration of Arianism, that the tombs of the Caesars should no longer be trampled by the savages of the north, and, without reflecting that Italy must sink into a province of Constantinople, they fondly hailed the restoration of a Roman emperor as a new era of freedom and prosperity. The deputies of the pope and clergy, of the senate and people, invited the lieutenant of Justinian to accept their voluntary allegiance, and to enter the city, whose gates would be thrown open for his reception. As soon as Belisarius had fortified his new conquests, Naples, and Cumae, he advanced about twenty miles to the banks of the Volturnus, contemplated the decayed grandeur of Capua, and halted at the separation of the Latin and Appian ways. The work of the censor, after an incessant use of nine centuries, still preserved its primeval beauty, and not a flaw could be discovered in the large, polished stones of which that solid, though narrow, road was so firmly compacted. Belisarius, however, preferred the Latin way, which, at a distance from the sea and the marshes, skirted in a space of one hundred and twenty miles along the foot of the mountains. His enemies had disappeared; when he made his entrance through the Asinarian gate, the garrison departed without molestation along the Flaminian way; and the city, after sixty years' servitude, was delivered from the yoke of the barbarians. Loedrus alone, From a motive of pride or discontent refused to accompany the fugitives and the gothic chief himself a trophy of the victory was sent with the keys of rome to the throne of the emperor justinian the first days which coincided with the old saturnalia was devoted to mutual congratulations and the public joy and the catholics prepared to celebrate without a rival the approaching festivity of the nativity of christ in the familiar conversation of a hero the Romans acquired some notion of the virtues which history ascribed to their ancestors. They were edified by the apparent respect of Belisarius for the successor of St. Peter, and his rigid discipline secured in the midst of war the blessings of tranquility and peace. They applauded the rapid success of his arms, which overran the adjacent country as far as Narni, Perusia, and Spoleto, but they trembled, the senate, the clergy, and the unwarlike people as soon as they understood that he had resolved and would speedily be reduced to sustain a siege against the powers of the Gothic monarchy. The designs of Vitiges was executed during the winter season with diligence and effect. From their rustic habitations, from their distant garrisons, the Goths assembled at Ravenna for the defense of their country, and such were their numbers that, after an army had been detached for the relief of Dalmatia, 150,000 fighting men marched under the royal standard. According to the degrees of rank or merit, the Gothic king distributed arms and horses, rich gifts and liberal promises. He moved along the Flaminian Way, declined the useless sieges of Perusia and Spoleto, respected the impregnable rock of Narni, and arrived within two miles of Rome at the foot of the Milvian Bridge. The narrow passage was fortified with a tower, and Belisarius had computed the value of twenty days, which must be lost in the construction of another bridge. But the consternation of the soldiers of the tower, who either fled or deserted, disappointed his hopes, and betrayed his person into the most imminent danger. At the head of one thousand horse, the Roman general sallied from the Flaminian gate to mark the ground of an advantageous position, and to survey the camp of the barbarians. But while he still believed them on the other side of the Tiber, He was suddenly encompassed and assaulted by their innumerable squadrons. The fate of Italy depended on his life, and the deserters pointed to his conspicuous horse, a bay with a white face, which he rode on that memorable day. Aim at the bay horse, was the universal cry. Every bow was bent, every javelin was directed, against that fatal object, and the command was repeated and obeyed by thousands, who were ignorant of its real motive. The bolder barbarians advanced to the more honorable combat of swords and spears, and the praise of an enemy has graced the fall of visandus the standard-bearer, who maintained his foremost station till he was pierced by thirteen wounds, perhaps by the hand of Belisarius himself. The Roman general was strong, active, and dexterous. On every side he discharged his weighty and mortal strokes. His faithful guards imitated his valor and defended his person, And the Goths, after the loss of a thousand men, fled before the arms of a hero. They were rashly pursued to their camp, and the romans, oppressed by multitudes, made a gradual and at length a precipitate retreat to the gates of the city. The gates were shut against the fugitives, and the public terror was increased by the report that Belisarius was slain. His countenance was indeed disfigured by sweat, dust, and blood. His voice was hoarse. His strength was almost exhausted but his unconquerable spirit still remained. He imparted that spirit to his desponding companions, and their last desperate charge was felt by the flying barbarians, as if a new army, vigorous and entire, had been poured from the city. The Flaminian gate was thrown open to a real triumph, but it was not before Belisarius had visited every post and provided for the public safety that he could be persuaded by his wife and friends to taste the needful refreshments of food and sleep. In the more improved state of the art of war, a general is seldom required or even permitted to display the personal prowess of a soldier, and the example of Belisarius may be added to the rare examples of Henry IV, of Pyrrhus, and of Alexander. After this first and unsuccessful trial of their enemies, the whole army of the Goths passed the Tiber and formed the siege of the city, which continued above a year till their final departure. Whatever fancy may conceive, the severe compass of the geographer defines the circumference of Rome within a line of twelve miles and three hundred and forty-five paces, and that circumference, except in the Vatican, has invariably been the same from the triumph of Aurelian to the peaceful but obscure reigns of the modern popes. But in the day of her greatness, the space within her walls was crowded with habitations and inhabitants, and the populous suburbs that stretched along the public roads were darted like so many rays from one common center. Adversity swept away these extraneous ornaments, and left naked and desolate a considerable part even of the seven hills. Yet Rome, in its present state, could send into the field about thirty thousand males of a military age, and notwithstanding the want of discipline and exercise, the far greater part, inured to the hardships of poverty, might be capable of bearing arms for the defense of their country and religion. The prudence of Belisarius did not neglect this important resource. His soldiers were relieved by the zeal and diligence of the people, who watched while they slept, who labored while they reposed. He accepted the voluntary service of the bravest and most indigent of the Roman youth, and the companies of townsmen sometimes represented in a vacant post the presence of the troops who had been drawn away to more essential duties. But his just confidence was placed in the veterans who had fought under his banner in the Persian and African wars. And although that gallant band was reduced to 5,000 men, he undertook, with such contemptible numbers, to defend a circle of 12 miles against an army of 150,000 barbarians. In the walls of Rome, which Belisarius constructed or restored, the materials of ancient architecture may be discerned, and the whole fortification was completed, except in a chasm, still extant between the Pinkian and Flaminian gates, which the prejudices of the Goths and Romans left under the effectual guard of St. Peter the Apostle. The battlements or bastions were shaped in sharp angles. A ditch, broad and deep, protected the foot of the rampart and the archers on the rampart were assisted by military engines, the ballista, a powerful crossbow, which darted short but massy arrows, the anagri, or wild asses, which, on the principle of a sling, threw stones and bullets of an enormous size. A chain was drawn across the Tiber, the arches of the aqueducts were made impervious, and the mole, or sepulcher of Hadrian, was converted, for the first time, to the uses of a citadel. That venerable structure, which contained the ashes of the Antonines, was a circular turret rising from a quadrangular basis. It was covered with the white marble of Paros, and decorated with the statues of gods and heroes. And the lover of the arts must read, with a sigh, that the works of Praxilites, or Lysippus, were torn from their lofty pedestals, and hurled into the ditch on the heads of the besiegers. To each of his lieutenants Belisarius assigned the defense of a gate, with the wise and peremptory instruction that, whatever might be the alarm, they should steadily adhere to the respective posts and trust their general for the safety of Rome. The formidable host of the Goths was insufficient to embrace the ample measure of the city. Of the fourteen gates, seven only were invested, from the Prinestine to the Flaminian Way, and Vitiges divided his troops into six camps, each of which was fortified with a ditch and rampart. On the Tuscan side of the river, a seventh encampment was formed in the field or circus of the Vatican, for the important purpose of commanding the Milvian bridge and the course of the Tiber. But they approached with devotion the adjacent church of Saint Peter, and the threshold of the holy apostles was respected during the siege by a Christian enemy. In the ages of victory, as often as the senate decreed some distant conquest, the consul denounced hostilities by unbarring in solemn pomp the gates of the temple of Janus. Domestic war now rendered the ammunition superfluous, and the ceremony was superseded by the establishment of a new religion. But the brazen temple of Janus was left standing in the forum, of a size sufficient only to contain the statue of the god, five cubits in height, of a human form, but with two faces directed to the east and west. The double gates were likewise of brass, and a fruitless effort to turn them on their rusty hinges revealed the scandalous secret that some Romans were still attracted to the superstition of their ancestors. Eighteen days were employed by the besiegers to provide all the instruments of attack which antiquity had invented. Fascines were prepared to fill the ditches, scaling ladders to ascend the walls. The largest trees of the forest supplied the timbers of four battering rams. Their heads were armed with iron. They were suspended by ropes, and each of them was worked by the labor of fifty men. The lofty wooden turrets moved on wheels or rollers and formed a spacious platform on the level of the rampart. On the morning of the nineteenth day, a general attack was made from the Prenestine Gate to the Vatican. Seven Gothic columns with their military engines advanced to the assault, and the Romans, who lined the ramparts, listened with doubt and anxiety to the cheerful assurances of their commander. As soon as the enemy approached the ditch, Belisarius himself drew the first arrow, and such was his strength and dexterity that he transfixed the foremost of the barbarian leaders. A shout of applause and victory was re-echoed along the wall. He drew a second arrow, and the stroke was followed with the same success and the same acclamation. The Roman general then gave the word that the archers should aim at the teams of oxen. They were instantly covered with mortal wounds. The towers which they drew remained useless and immovable, and a single moment disconcerted the laborious projects of the king of the Goths. After this disappointment, Vitiges still continued, or feigned to continue, the assault of the Salarian Gate, that he might divert the attention of his adversary, while his principal forces more strenuously attacked the Pranestine Gate and the Sepulchre of Hadrian, at the distance of three miles from each other. Near the former, The double walls of the vivarium were low or broken. The fortifications of the latter were feebly guarded. The vigor of the Goths was excited by the hope of victory and spoil, and if a single post had given way, the Romans and Rome itself were irrecoverably lost. This perilous day was the most glorious in the life of Belisarius. Amidst tumult and dismay, the whole plan of the attack and defense was distinctly present to his mind. He observed the changes of each instant, weighed every possible advantage, transported his person to the scenes of danger, and communicated his spirit in calm and decisive orders. The contest was fiercely maintained from the morning to the evening. The Goths were repulsed on all sides, and each Roman might boast that he had vanquished thirty barbarians, if the strange disproportion of numbers had not been counterbalanced by the merit of one man. 30,000 Goths, according to the confession of their own chiefs, perished in this bloody action, and the multitude of the wounded was equal to that of the slain. When they advanced to the assault, their close disorder suffered not a javelin to fall without effect, and as they retired, the populace of the city joined the pursuit and slaughtered with impunity the backs of their flying enemies. Belisarius instantly sallied from the gates, and while the soldiers chanted his name and victory, the hostile engines of war were reduced to ashes. Such was the loss and consternation of the Goths, that from this day the siege of Rome degenerated into a tedious and indolent blockade, and they were insensibly harassed by the Roman general, who, in frequent skirmishes, destroyed above 5,000 of their bravest troops. Their cavalry was unpractised in the use of the bow, their archers served on foot, and this divided force was incapable of contending with their adversaries whose lances and arrows, at a distance or at hand, were alike formidable. The consummate skill of Belisarius embraced the favorable opportunities, and as he chose the ground and the moment, as he pressed the charge or sounded the retreat, the squadrons which he detached were seldom unsuccessful. These partial advantages diffused an impatient ardor among the soldiers and people, who began to feel the hardships of a siege and to disregard the dangers of a general engagement the consummate skill of belisarius embraced the favourable opportunities and as he chose the ground and the moment as he pressed the charge or sounded the retreat the squadrons which he detached were seldom unsuccessful these partial advantages diffused an impatient ardour among the soldiers and people who began to feel the hardships of a siege and to disregard the dangers of a general engagement each plebeian conceived himself to be a hero and the infantry who since the decay of discipline were rejected from the line of battle, aspired to the ancient honors of the Roman legion. Belisarius praised the spirit of his troops, condemned their presumption, and yielded to their clamors, and prepared the remedies of defeat, the possibility of which he alone had courage to suspect. In the quarter of the Vatican, the Romans prevailed, and if the irreparable moments had not been wasted in the pillage of the camp, they might have occupied the Milvian Bridge and charged in the rear of the Gothic host. On the other side of the Tiber, Belisarius advanced from the Pinkian and Salarian gates. But his army, 4,000 soldiers perhaps, was lost in a spacious plain. They were encompassed and oppressed by fresh multitudes who continually relieved the broken ranks of the barbarians. The valiant leaders of the infantry were unskilled to conquer. They died. The retreat, a hasty retreat, was covered by the prudence of the general, and the victors started back with affright from the formidable aspect of an armed rampart. The reputation of Belisarius was unsullied by a defeat, and the vain confidence of the Goths was not less serviceable to his designs than the repentance and modesty of the Roman troops. End of chapter 41, part 3